0: I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. you know that I served in the military. I, you know, I got to be honest. I call myself, I'll say it like this. I'll say uh, when I served with the Marines, which would make you think that I was what? A Marine. But the truth is, is I was in the Navy. It's not that I'm not proud of the Navy. It's not that I don't love the fact that I was part of that wonderful branch, but I identify as a Marine, let me tell you why. So when I joined the Navy, I first went to the Marine Corps office, told them that I wanted to join the Marines and asked them what would that necessitate in my life? How might that look? And they gave me a very good picture of what that looked like. So I said, thank you, and I walked out and I walked into the Navy recruiter's office right next door. And I asked them the same question and they told me life is grand. <laughs> you, get to all, you get to go to these many ports, you get to see the world, you get to wear these cool uniforms that coordinate by season, and it would be a great time for you. So I said, that's great, sign me up. Can you promise that I'm going to be in the medical field? They said absolutely. So I signed with the Navy, I became a hospital corpsman, and I was told that if I did my very best at school, that I would be able to pick my orders, okay? So I go through boot camp, I go to a school, where I'm starting to learn to be what it means a hospital, to be a hospital corpsman. And I start hearing this word about Navy serves with the Marines, and I grew worried. <laughs> they said, do your best. The better you do, you get to pick your orders. So I was going to do the best that I could and go to some place beautiful like Rota, Spain, or I was going to go someplace like Hawaii. I scored number two in the class, and they said, oh, that thing about picking your orders? Well, the needs of the Navy supersede that. And right now, we have a dire need for medics with 2nd Marine Division. So I was sent to 2nd Marine Division in Camp Lejeune, where I served with an artillery battalion out of 10th Marine Regiment. Incidentally, the same regiment that our biggest kingdom kid, Marty, served in. And when I first showed up, I thought, here I joined the Navy so I wouldn't have to carry a pack. And now I joined the Navy, go to the Marines, and now I have to carry two my own, and all of the medical bags that had to go along with it. But something happened over time. I fell in love with these men. Something happened about being part of this group, part of this family that knew, no matter what happened, that they had my back, that they loved me, and they knew that I loved them, and I was willing to die for them, and they were willing to die for me. We talk a lot about in the military, particularly in the Marine Corps, we say once a Marine, always a Marine. It's something that once it happens, we see you as part of something different and grand and better. Now, I don't got to tell you what it's like between military branches when talking about the other branches of the military. There's this, yeah, sort of camaraderie, but in the end, there's also this attention. Well, I want to tell you that the tension exists even within individual branches. Once a year, our regiment would get together, and we would do something called, it was like an Olympic day or like a field day or something like that, where the regiment, which was composed of four battalions, would get together, and we would do competitions against one another. And people who had once been friends and family were dire enemies, We took out grudges and said, I'm in 5th Battalion, 10th Marines, but I'm going to get that guy in 2nd Battalion, 10th Marines because 2nd Battalion is garbage. 5th Battalion is where it's at, even though it's the exact same thing. So we went out, I remember this one time, huge parade ground, big as a soccer field, maybe even bigger, and we were playing this game where the ball is about 8 feet high, okay? And it's a plastic rubber ball sitting in the middle of the field, and you have one battery on one side from one battalion, another battery from another battalion on another side, they're all in called boots and utes. So they're in their camouflage bottoms and their combat boots bloused out and they're wearing their green t-shirts and they're ready to go. The object of the game, get the ball into the other person's end zone, similar to football. Think of it like that. The problem was is that we didn't start at the ball. We started on the end zones, blew a whistle and everyone ran towards each other. It was like a scene out of Braveheart. There were people screaming bloody murder as they're getting closer and closer to that center ball. Bam, the ball gets hit. We had two broken arms that day, multiple bloody noses. What went from brotherly love, we're all Marines, we all bleed green, that's what we say. We all bleed green turned into, I'm gonna kill you. Now, this is a funny sort of story. So one of the things that I remember a whole lot about being in the military, but what's interesting to me is about the way a friend can become a foe. What's interesting to me is about the way one battalion within a larger group could look at another battalion and could actually create animus towards that person. You know, we all want to be part of a winning team, don't we? We all want to be part of the group that is the right group, the best group, the most righteous group. And I think that's part of what it means to be a human. It's innate in our humanity to want to be within a group there's a sociological norm there that says our group is better but because sin affects every aspect of our lives it affects the way we see ourselves within our own group and the way we view groups that are other that are different We tend, because of our sin, to thrust ourselves into a higher category. We're superior to them. We're better than them. We're smarter than them. We do better work than they do. And that sin in us creates distance, distinction, and like I said, a sense of superiority in the way we view certain groups. Now, this on its face can sort of, we think about racism, but this is not the only area that this plays out. That's just one of many. But the truth is, is in God's word, we are commanded to love those who are different. We're commanded to love even our enemies. This is important because if we don't, if we don't begin to love people in a radical way, the way Jesus did, we're going to begin to only love those people who are like us. We will begin to only love those people who think like us, who talk like us, who want to create a world That we want to create. Not only that, we, and by doing so, we'll look like the rest of the world. I mean, we're inundated right now with a cancel culture that if you say something I don't like, you're dead to me. That permeating out into every aspect of our lives can create a place where pretty soon we're by ourselves because only we believe the way we believe. Sin has a way of driving distinctions and separating. Not only that, if we don't love our enemies like Jesus commands us, we end up loving out of a selfish mind. We're guided by what benefits us the most. Or we neglect to show the radical love of Christ to people who really, really need it. People who really must feel and are intended to feel through us. His brothers and sisters, children of the Father. We're intended to be the love that people see. I mean, we're surrounded by people who need to see and feel the love of Christ. And Jesus makes no distinction, therefore neither should we. So today we're going to be reading out of the Sermon on the Mount. We're in chapter 5 of Matthew, Matthew 5. And we're going to start in verse 43. The Sermon on the Mount is a a grand sermon that Jesus gives to his disciples while standing on, well, a hill. I was there at Israel. Right now there's a beautiful cathedral with all of these monuments and a beautiful garden, but that's probably not where it happened. It probably happened in the banana plantation or banana farm, just outside of the fence. So when I was in Israel, there's all these things, and I was standing at the fence like this, looking out at this field, saying, I want to go there, because that's where it happened. Jesus brings his disciples to him and he's laying out a king a vision for what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like. He's laying out a vision of how his disciples are to live. So let's read through this, verse 43. You have heard it said, you shall love your enemy and hate you, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So this raises an important question. If we are to love our enemies the way Jesus commands us to, the first question is, who is our enemy? This is an important question because the way we answer matters to the practice of this command. Jesus was once asked by a lawyer, it says he was asked by a lawyer who was seeking to justify himself. I think he was trying to trip up Jesus and then make himself feel better. He asked the question, well, who's my neighbor? Because how you define that matters. Jesus goes on to give the parable of the Good Samaritan. We're supposed to love people who are different than us, people who we've been told we should not love. That's how far our radical love should go to others. And like the lawyer, sometimes we too seek to justify our limited view of who our neighbor is and therefore limit who it is we're called to love. So for our purposes this morning, an enemy is anybody with whom you hold enmity. What does that mean? Anybody who is at loggerheads with you for any reason. Anybody you stand at odds with regarding some issue in your life, whether or not that person is someone in your family or a friend or somebody, we would say over there, out there, the abstract sort of person. As we read this text, context is important because in the context of the Middle East time when Jesus is speaking about this, and still even today, there's a strong sense of tribalism that occurs in this area. We tend here in the West and America to look at the issue as a Muslim Jewish issue. We say there's Israel, there's Palestine, and there's all these nations and they hate each other. It's far more complicated than that. That's why I don't think there's been a solution to this problem yet is because there are also clans, families, tribes, religions, -religions, sub-religions, sub-families, sub-clans. You do this, I do that. You wear this, I wear that. You look like that, I look like this. That one thing you did hundreds of years ago, yeah, we remember. And it creates distinction and separation. We say, oh, those people, and we all do this. Those, fill in the blank, are at it again. Those people over there are continuing to act this way. Think about it. Political parties, right? Not one time have I watched a newscast, particularly a cable newscast, where the person who is on the opposing side transmitted anything like goodwill towards the other. They bank on separating. We even call them political opponents, enemies. We look at the history of religions and wars. Look at Northern Ireland, Catholic versus Protestant, and the hundreds or thousands of people that died as a result of that. This can even bleed down into our sports teams. If you don't believe me, ask Argentina. It gets violent. One of my dreams in life is to go to a soccer game in Azteca Stadium. And I want to see Mexico and U.S. play a a friendly. We'll quote it, a friendly. There are no friendlies, okay? But that's my dream to stand in that place that holds 85,000 people where soccer is life. I remember watching a game one time on TV and they're panning the crowd, you know, with the camera. And it was awesome. People are just fired up, got their face painted, wearing their shirts, they're screaming. And then there was this little glut, this little section Surrounded by armed militia. That was the other side's team fans. That is what soccer and sports can mean. Think about ethnic groups. I just read something this morning that anti Semitism is on the rise, 20% rise over last year in the use of anti Semitic tropes on media. A trope is a storyline. A storyline. Social organizations, I belong to this organization, you belong to that organization. I don't know, are you Rotary, are you Kiwanis, or what are you? You know, there's brand names. Think about that. How we will elevate one brand over another, not because of quality, but because of what we think it means for us. How we fit in. Really, any person, place, or thing that is set at odds against us. This often is people very close to us. Our own family and friends can sometimes be considered an enemy. It's true. I mean, you may say, and we had this discussion in our staff meeting, well, I don't have any enemies. How does this, what does this mean for me? The truth is, is that you don't have to be the one aggress, you don't have to be the aggressor. You can be the one who's being hated and still be an enemy and have an enemy. And this is an important piece to understand because we're all enemies. (laughs) We all have some area in our life, some person in our life, some situation in our life that this passage is speaking to, that God is speaking to you through. Enmity does not require both parties to be equally opposed to each other. And the spirit of enmity can be held entirely by the other person. They'd still be our enemies. In other words, they are not my enemy, but I am theirs. They seek to thwart and undermine me and my message. I think this happens every single day. I'll give you an example in my life. I belong to a secular organization that does not talk about things religious, that is part of their uh, sort of their founding things. It's their uh, imminently secular organization in which I participate in. But people know what I do for a living. They know what I believe. They know what I talk about, and they know what my mindset is, my worldview is, and how I approach problems in life. And I don't limit who I am as a follower of the Lord in those environments. So you might translate this to your work environment, or you might translate this into family who are not believers or who believe differently than you do. What I've found is that there are people who don't like me there specifically because of what I believe and assume of me a certain body of evidence. And so what i found is that they like to say things on the side. You know that he really fill in the blank. And rumors will begin, or comments will be made, in an effort to distance me from the rest of the people so that I will not live out what I believe. I believe it's true that each and every one of you struggle, whether you know it or not, are in a situation like this, because this is the human Christian condition. The message and truth of the gospel is unpalatable to most people. And us, by our very nature, by our very existence as children of God, are viewed as enemies by the world. This sounds all very disturbing, and we don't want to talk about it. I don't want to be an anybody, enemy to anybody, but the truth is, is you are. And the closer you walk to the Lord, with the more the more you are sold out to Him, the more you surrendered your life to Him, the more you are doing in ministry for Him, the brighter your light, the saltier your salt, the more you act like a Christian, the more you will be targeted. So, what is our response? To people. This is what today's message is about. Not only that we're called to love our enemies, but how are we supposed to interact with them when they are aggressive towards us? Jesus tells us in this passage. He gives us a little more details here that help shape our understanding of, of what your enemy is, of who your enemy is. So verse 44, he says, those who persecute you, so people who treat you with anger or aggression, when we hear the word persecute, we, I think, naturally think of a religious persecution. But it can happen in lots of ways. You know, it can happen in the way, similar to me, it's never spoken about my religion, but we know that this is why. It's not the actual subject. Those who make fun of your faith. I was that guy. Would I say that I was persecuting Christians? Absolutely. Absolutely those who seek to exclude you from the cool kids those who seek to push you out to marginalize you to make what you have to say not important those who persecute you he says that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust so the enemies the enemy are those who are unjust people who treat you unfairly people who assume the worst of you i wrote cheaters and beaters when we talked about this in a staff meeting, we sort of teased out what does it mean to have an enemy? Who is our enemy? We say, Well, what about this group? Well, I don't think anything bad about them. Well, what about this group? Well, it's really interesting when you start getting really honest about that. There are groups of people out there that I think each and every one of us holds some hesitancy, some animus towards. These are the very people that Jesus is calling you to love. When I was in prison, I walked into the chow hall the first time. I was walking with someone, and they said, so I said, so give me the lay of the land here. Explain to me what's going on. So imagine a big cafeteria, and there's tables everywhere, and they're grouped. He says, well, those guys are these people, a gang. Those guys are these people. Those guys are these people. The gang, gang, gang. And I said, what's that table over there? Don't, let me, there was also a table of a bunch of white guys with bald heads. Who are those guys? I know who those guys are. Then there was a table of everyone else. I said, who are those? I said, those are Christians and child molesters. Okay. Raises an interesting question. Why? On the one hand, Christians are so marginalized, they're looked at by the rest of the world as being something completely different and need to be swept aside. On the other hand, we are called to love the most. The people who have done the most horrific things are abject enemies. This is the love of Christ. This is the seriousness with which God is calling us to love people we do not want to love. Imagine what our love towards the rest of the world would like if we were prepared to love people even to that extent. Instead, we fall right into the trap of what Jesus is talking about, greeting those who think like us, those who look like us, those who talk like us. All of us should have friends in the world, people who do not think and talk like us, people who do not believe like us. And we should be loving them with a love that I would say surpasses even that of what we're ready to give here among our family of faith. Jesus says that even sinners love this way. Verse 46, so there's this idea of sinners are our enemies as well. When we look at things that people have done and how people view the world, he uses the example tax collector. A tax collector at this time was somebody who was a Jewish person who sided essentially with the Romans and took money from his brothers and sisters in the form of taxes to pay the Romans the tax debt and whatever was left was his. So in a situation in a country like Israel that year and year, century after century, was occupied by foreign invaders, to have one of your own brothers in the faith and blood to now side with an enemy in order to make money off of you This is who Jesus is talking about. Maybe this translates in our life to those who are two-faced. Hypocrites. People who are more interested in themselves and their own gain than in those of those around them. People who couldn't care less about the God of Israel, Isaac, and Jacob. People who seek to teach our children sinful practices and teach them that it's good those people. Those are the people God is calling us to love. Jesus talks about Gentiles, people who are non-Jews, people who are not Jewish by, by race. So this translates and bleeds out into those who believe differently than us, other religions, and those who are ethnically different. There's a church in Maywood that burned down several weeks ago, and I've been really excited that our church has taken a a stand in helping them. They are now meeting in the Broadview Community Center, and we have um, a couple people who are there setting up sound. We've set up sound for them. We've helped them put on their services. Last week was their first service together as a group in that community center. We had people there. Today after service, I'm going there too. I met with the pastor a couple of weeks ago right after it happened and we were having coffee and he was so just blessed. He was just blessed. I just, for our prayer for him, for our concern for him, the way that we wanted to help for him and his church. And right at the very end of our conversation, he said, you know, I've never worked with people who were different than me. I said, white guys. I know, you can say it, white people. He said, yeah, it's true, never. 25 years as a pastor, never. That is so sad. So sad. So in the end, who's my enemy? Anyone with whom we're at odds. Those people who irritate us. People who hate us. People who've sinned against us or others in grave ways those who advocate for that which is sinful and contrary to God's word, even those who would kill us if they had the chance. I hope I've included a sufficient body of people to ensure you that this message applies to you and that if you're honest with yourself and look into your heart that you do have enemies. If you were like me, you would have like had me at enemy. It was like right at the beginning, bam. Bam. Because as I read this, the Lord was just like pounding me over the head. See you. See you. So if that's our enemy, why do we love our enemies? Jesus gives us a reason. Sometimes it it helps to know why we're doing something. It gives us that extra push that we need to be convinced. Loving our enemies is the hallmark of the child of God. It is what makes us us. We are supposed to be loving people in a way that nobody else does. When we love like God, we exemplify who we are as his children because we're loving like him. It's similar to walking in the footsteps of your father. This is what my father did. This is what my grandfather did. Now this is what I do in terms of vocation. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Act like your dad. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Why do I have to love this person? Because you're a child of God. Why do I have to extend any kind of grace to these people? Because you're supposed to live like your dad, who's extended grace to them. When we allow the fruit of the Spirit to extend even toward our enemies, we demonstrate that really God's will is the highest priority in our life. That we seek nothing more than to live like him. We seek nothing more than to be like him. We had an elder meeting, abbreviated elder meeting last week, and we ended up just praying. We prayed for all of you by name, down the list, all of you. Beforehand, we had a conversation And we were just seeing where each other were at. We are trying to understand life and our hearts. Because it doesn't, you know, it's hard to pray for other people when you're all blocked up and you got something going on. So we talked about that first. And I was sharing how I just, I feel like, like 90%, maybe more, like it's an arbitrary number, but 90% of what I do here as a pastor in terms of organization, in terms of leadership, is trying to figure out processes and pipelines and all that, meaningless meaningless. I'm in a place where God right now is telling me what you really want and what you really should tell them is to throw themselves at the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord. Don't you just want to live with God? Don't you just want to have communion with him over everything? Everything. Get up in the morning. There you are. I could hardly wait to rise. Because you're there. I could hardly wait to get up and go to church because we're gonna worship you. Not, we're gonna be late to Sunday school again. I say that as a joke, okay? Because we're always late. I don't know about you, but I want a life that's different, I wanna be different. I want to be like God. I want to live like Jesus in a way that's real and not just put on, not just a face that comes out naturally. How do we do that? We do everything we can to get closer to him by moving everything in our life out of the way. We got all these obstacles we place in between us and him. We're called to be his children. We should look like him. I want to look like him. If we allow the spirit to extend out to our enemies and the way we live, we demonstrate that God's will is our highest priority. But if we quench the spirit, that is, if we leave those obstacles there, if when God's calling us to love someone and we say, quiet you, or don't mess with me right now, we demonstrate that our heart is far too concerned with self. Our Father loves them, and so too should we. God shows his goodness to them even even in their sin. He says he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Theologically, this is a doctrine called common grace. This means that God loves everybody and extends his grace toward everybody By providing things like, it says like this, rain, food, knowledge, cause and effect relationships. There's a way that God loves all of the people in his creation by giving them grace when he doesn't need to. He's patient with them. That's called common grace. But as believers, we have something even better. As believers, we have something called special grace. Special grace is that grace that goes above and beyond that which is lavished upon humanity. Special grace is the grace that we receive when our eyes are open to the truth. Special grace is what we receive when we open our Bible and we have the revelation of God given to us. Special grace is God's extending Christ to come to die for his children. We were once enemies of God, no matter how good we think we were or are or what we thought or felt towards him. God said that we were enemies. But out of the riches of his special grace, God made a provision for us in his son Jesus that we would not have to bear the penalty of our sin completely apart from anything we've done, totally unworthy. Out of the riches of his special grace, God made provision for us he opened our eyes to the truth. He fills us with the Holy Spirit when we come to Jesus Christ in faith. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He works through us to create outcomes that we could never do in our own strength. Out of his special grace, God promises to keep us in his hand until the day he, promises to, he comes to make everything new. Everything. Think about this passage, this text, Romans 5.8. For God shows his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. There's another passage that talks about while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God. If God's sort of M.O. in the way he deals with humanity is to love them where they are and to extend his goodness and grace to them in that place, how much more should we be doing that? How much more should we be loving people? The love for our enemies should look like that. But this is so hard. How do we do this? Thank you, Jesus. He gave you some answers in this passage as well. First of all, we strive to love our enemies from God's perspective. What does that mean? That means we try to see them through God's eyes. We try to love them the way that God has loved us. We try to recreate the gospel toward us in their life towards them. But it begins with humility. You have to humble yourself and accept that grace, understand, embrace the truth of grace that I just explained, that you did nothing to earn it. We did nothing to earn it. We too were enemies And God, out of his tremendous love, called us, opened our eyes. You see, we tend to love others out of our perspective, our preferences, our faulty judgments. Each and every one of us needs our egos deflated because sin nature always seeks to thrust itself over others. I was sitting somewhere yesterday and I was talking to somebody and, um, He's a kid, young kid. I said, Oh, you're gonna have to eat crow. He said, What? I said, You're gonna have to eat crow. I don't eat crow. I said, it's a phrase. I explained to him what it means. I said, when you say something and your pride and your arrogance, and then it turns out to be false and before others, and then they got those people saying, I told you so, kind of thing, and then you gotta go to them and say, I'm sorry, you were right, I was wrong. That's called eating crow. He goes, oh, okay. I said, your life, you need to be a crow maniac, an aficionado. I said, your life, your meals need to be permeated with crow. We need to live lives of constant evaluation of where we were wrong, an intentional submission to the Lord and recognizing that he is right. This is called a lifestyle of repentance. Repentance. And then, by natural extension, understanding that we, too, in our interactions with others, do not see clearly. There are many times that we're wrong. And so, when we approach problems, when we approach people, relationships, a passage like this, we need to come with the presupposition on our heart that I'm probably seeing this wrong. I'm probably living life in a way that I shouldn't. And there are areas, either big or small, that need to be tweaked by God's grace, but we need to have the humility to look at that. Jesus humbled himself on a cross to make a way for his enemies to be saved. If Christ did, so should we. It's when we humble ourselves, the Spirit is able to come in and work through us, but we can't fill a cup that's already full. If your heart is full of yourself, no room for the Spirit. When we empty the cup of self, When we empty the cup of self centeredness, self interest, ego, arrogance, pride, and we come before him with nothing, it's then that he can fill us. And when he does, it overflows to those around us. And we begin to love like Jesus, we begin to love our enemies. So not only do we humble ourselves, verse 44 says, we pray for those who persecute us. We pray. I believe it's impossible to pray for an enemy without something changing. Either they change. Something in their life happens. God does something in the situation to change this. And this should be our deepest heart's desire. I know sometimes we pray for people technically. Technically. But what we really want is vengeance. What we really want is for them to come groveling and to say, You were right and I was wrong. Jesus, that's not Jesus' will for us. When we pray for those who are different, when we pray for our enemies, when we pray for anyone in our lives with whom we're at odds, our prayer should be for their good, for their mercy. For their grace, that they would be transformed in their hearts and have the vision of God that you have been given, that their lives be permeated by the mercy and grace that they, yes, would repent of their sin, yes, would see things according to God's will, but in the end, because it's a good thing and you seek to call them brother or sister. We don't do this. I see this frequently in our politics. We'll pray for a political opponent. But there's no heart there. There's no intention that their lives would be transformed. There's no desperate plea for them. This is how God wants us to pray for our enemies. So either they change or we change. We begin to see them differently. It's hard to hold a resentment against somebody that you're praying for. We pray that we see their understanding, understand their heart, their perspective better. And often the animus that once existed is changed in prayer. It goes away. And if you have a hard time praying with goodwill towards those people, ask God to change you. Lord, make me want to want the best. Make me want to love them like you love them. Make me seek their good and their mercy because right now I don't. We greet them. Verse 47 it says, even Gentiles greet one another. It actually says, if you only greet those who are like you. So we acknowledge people, we show them kindness. We seek to be welcoming and taking a genuine interest in their lives, assuming the best of them. We talked about that last week when we talked about what love is like. But this requires us to be intentional and to push against our own natural inclinations. How often do we see someone coming down the street and we go to the other side? Someone that's irritating. Somebody that we know we're going to talk to, but we don't really want to. There's been times, I probably shouldn't say this. There are times I've been in the store, shopping. Turn the corner and come right back (laughs) and go this way. That is not God's will for me in the way that I love and extend grace to others, nor is it for you. God wants us to push through. And then Jesus raises the bar even to the highest, to the nth degree in the final verse, in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When you read about this perfection piece in the Bible, do not think perfectionism, that if you make one mistake, all is lost. That's not the intent. This may be better translated as whole. As God is whole, you must be whole. That means there are no exceptions in your life. That means you make the determination and the power of God, trusting his will, trusting his outcome, that in the end, everybody falls into the category of love your neighbor, love your enemy. There are no exceptions. Like I said, I made the mention in prison. It's easy to find people who plug into an exception category. When we love people, when we love our enemies, it does not say that what they've done is good. In fact, most of the time it's not. It does not mean that we should approve or accept of what they did. Nor does loving our enemies mean that we condone it before God, that somehow we partner with them. What it means is we're living like the children of our Father. We're walking in our Father's footsteps, extending our love, His love, through us to everybody. An enemy is anyone with whom we are at enmity. That was my first Because loving our enemies is the hallmark of being a child of God. So we're called to strive to love our enemies from God's perspective. So, who, I mean, I'm hoping the Spirit has revealed something to you today. Don't just come in here and and, and say, well, that was maybe a good talk, and then leave and go right back to where you were. I mean, God's asking you for, there's an action point here in your life. God's asking you to love somebody you do not want to love. Who did he bring to mind? I don't want you to leave here without allowing God to change your heart, to make that first little move. Show that slightest bit of willingness and he'll meet you in that place. Make the decision today to push back against your sin nature and extend love to your enemy as the Lord Jesus would have you do, like he did to you when he saved you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have created such a high example, such a seemingly impossible example in the life of your Son, Jesus, our Savior, our model for life. Yet, Lord, you've told us that we can do this. You've promised that we could do this through the Spirit that you've given to us. But we know, Lord, in our own power it's impossible. We've tried to love those who are difficult, who are enemies, We pray, Lord, that you would once and for all change us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us move aside any sense of self-righteousness, any sense of arrogance, and make us willing, Lord, that we can love like you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.